Welcome to China in Context, episode 29. I'm Duncan Bartlett. Communist China is officially an atheist country, yet gods and immortals still hold great influence over people's lives. There are hundreds of millions of followers of the main religions, Buddhism, Taoism, Christianity and Islam, as well as Falun Gong, the largest of several banned new religious movements. Those groups don't have much in common theologically, but each offers an alternative perspective on life to the ideology of the ruling Communist Party. This often creates political tension. Indeed, the Chinese Communist Party has imposed crackdowns on the Muslim Uyghurs, underground Christian churches and Tibetan Buddhists, although it's not always clear whether religion is at the root cause of the conflict. To help us understand the role of religion in China, I'm delighted to welcome back to our podcast an expert with a wonderful overview of Chinese society, Stephen Chan, Professor of World Politics at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. Stephen, I think we need to start with the topic which has dominated the news from China in relation to religion over the past few years, the fate of the Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Around a million of them are being held in detention centres. The Chinese authorities call them re-education centres. What's the focus of this re-education? Is it their religion or is it political? It's both in the sense that if religion is seen to be, as it were, an inspiration towards some kind of autonomy for them as people, as Uyghurs, independent of the Chinese state, then that religion is frowned upon. So what you have in these education centers, if they follow the lines of education centers that have been used in the past, if they follow standard Chinese methodology of re-education, as it were, will be a very great deal of rather heavy-handed persuasion uh, that the virtues of the Chinese state and the party are such that they're so much greater than anything that religion can provide. Now, the problem with Xinjiang and with the Uyghurs is that you've got people who are not Chinese. In other words, they're not Han Chinese, the dominant uh, strand of being Chinese. Uh, the Uyghurs are a Turkic people, so they would have a historical nationalism, which is not Chinese. If anything, there are some affinities to Mongolian civilization, but not to Chinese Han civilization as such. So the problematic of the re-education centers is not only to educate people to behave themselves as citizens of the Chinese state, it's to persuade people almost to abandon some key attributes of their ethnic national background. Uh, that's why these re-education centers are almost certainly doomed to fail. Uh, that's not going to be admitted anytime soon. So they become not so much re-education centers, uh, centers of detention. And the idea, I think, is not just to detain people willy-nilly in a random manner, but to detain people so that members of their families are still at liberty, and so that the detention is a warning for friends, families, outside of the detention centers to behave themselves. So it's got that kind of policing and warning capacity. But as I said, central mission to teach people to be good citizens, while there may or may not be some headway with that, 
uh, to try to make people, as it were, renounce or in some way curtail or reduce their affinity to their Turkic national heritage, that's going to be much, much harder. I think the treatment of the Uyghurs has left many people with the impression that China is often a hostile environment for religion. Yet its religious culture is very ancient and very diverse. Chinese Buddhism seems to be generally tolerated. Is that because it's seen as an indigenous faith? Well, indeed, not just Buddhism, but Taoism, for instance, uh, both approved religions and their officialized forms. And these are, of course, very, very traditional. Uh, they're the very, very heart of how we imagine Chinese belief and Chinese culture and civilization. But the key thing is that they, along with Islam, along with Catholicism and Protestantism, these are approved religions which have to have state sanction and they've got to behave themselves along lines prescribed by the state. And insofar as the Uyghurs are Islamic, not behaving themselves along the lines sanctioned by the state, wanted to have far more freedom and autonomy from the centralized state and the centralized party. Now, this is what has caused a very great deal of persecution of these people. And of course, a great deal of corresponding resentment on the part of these people. Now, hand in hand with this, there's been another tactic the Chinese have tried in different parts of their territories or contested territories. have done this in Tibet, for instance, and that's to bring in a huge number of settlers who are of Han Chinese background. In other words, what you're trying to do is to not ethnically cleanse a region. You can't deport an entire people who've been there for over a thousand years, but very much to mix that region to such an extent that you have predominant class with loyalties to Han Chinese values. And that caused a great deal of resentment among the Uyghurs, of course. And as I was saying earlier, the whole imposition of re-education camps is likely to cause even more resentment. There are different strands of Buddhism in China, aren't there? I'm thinking now of the Tibetan Buddhists. Uh, Tibet's a special autonomous region of China. And when I've spoken to people who've been exiled from there, they tell me that they feel that their religious freedom has been taken away from them. There's quite a bit of re-education going on, as I understand it, um, with children learning to sing songs in praise of the Communist Party, rather than the Buddhist sutras, for example. There's absolutely a huge effort in Tibet, and it's made more urgent because the Chinese authorities seem to have a huge fear of the Dalai Lama, who, of course, is in exile. There's a current dispute now as to who gets the right to appoint the next Dalai Lama. The current Dalai Lama is 86. He's not showing any signs of departing his mortal coil anytime soon. But even so, having reached the grand old age of 86, people are thinking about the next one. And Beijing is determined that they're going to select the candidate. In other words, the whole idea of trying to control religious thought and control religious leadership and remove the alternative of an independent leadership uh, makes the whole campaign in Tibet highly political. It's a politicized as well as a religious campaign. And basically what you also have, of course, is you've got the whole contestation over Tibet as to whether historically it belongs to China or whether historically it enjoyed a great deal of autonomy, if not parts of it having enjoyed independence in the past. So this huge political controversy 
has huge religious elements to it. Because if there is some kind of political unity underneath a religious leader, someone like the Dalai Lama, uh, then what you have, of course, is an absolute alternative to the Chinese claim that they're the rightful sovereigns, both in terms of ownership and rulership of the country, but also in terms of the kind of cultural animation of the people of that country. I want to ask you a question about terminology. The word I'm interested in is heterodox. Now, it's not a word that we hear very often, perhaps you do in academic circles, but in China, it seems to have a particular meaning. Article 300 of criminal law in China, there's a clause there which states that using a heterodox religion to undermine implementation of the law carries with it punishment terms of up to life in prison. Can you explain what a heterodox religion is and why could someone be imprisoned for following it? Basically, anything that doesn't get official sanction from the state bodies that sanction permissible religions can be regarded as heterodox. And in particular, those that are not official, but have no, as it were, easily identified center of organization. In other words, these are religions that spring up and attract the popular following and are almost impossible to govern or to regulate. The unpredictability of belief is what is being legislated against here. And so what the Chinese authorities want is not only uniformity and regulatory ways of behaving, but they also want predictable ways of behaving. So a heterodox religion is something with a difficult to discern center of organization. Uh, if you can discern it, you can persecute it, of course. But it's also unpredictable. And that is precisely what the Communist Party does not want. The whole thing about centralized planning is to make everything predictable. So that heterodox can stand for eccentricity of a sort that cannot be made to fit into state edicts and the state's way of trying to regulate society. Now, in many cultures, leaders have often seen that the moral guidance offered by religion can be also used as a method to persuade citizens to become more obedient. There's often an idea that if you're a good Buddhist or a good Christian or a good Muslim, you'll turn into a more law-abiding, loyal citizen. What's the situation in China? Well, most citizens in China are quite law-abiding because sanctions against not being law-abiding can be so severe. So the problem is not religion making people defy the law. Uh, it's very, very much religion having the possibility to give people alternative sets of values. And that is something which, as I've said before, is anathema to the Chinese state and the Chinese Communist Party. The values have to be communist, they have to be regulated and directed from the center. So autonomous values and independent values and values that have different centers of organization, those are very, very greatly frowned upon. Now, insofar as you might have people who would otherwise be very law-abiding, but have different values and different ways of organizing their values, that's enough to get them into a lot of trouble. I mentioned at the start one of the new religious movements, Falun Gong. We could probably devote a whole podcast to that topic, but briefly, 
just tell us a little bit about Falun Gong? I know it's a bit of a strange organization. Why was it banned and what's it doing now? Well, it's headquartered in New York State right now. now that's where it's gone in exile. So the founder, Li Hongxi, uh, took himself off uh, to New York because obviously he would be imprisoned if he had remained in China. Uh, it was founded in roughly the mid-1990s. The exact history of it is rather opaque, but it's a syncretic religion. It basically takes the key authentic cultural Chinese religions, particularly Taoism and uh, Buddhism, uh, conflates them with a touch of Confucianism into a syncretic religion. It also practices uh, Chinese, what they call Qigong, which is a form of energy generation, uh, which is a centerpiece of certain forms of Chinese martial arts. But you basically channel the energy of heaven into your system. This is very esoteric. Uh, the set exercises that allow you to do this over a period of time, uh, these are what illustrate Li Hongxi's books on the Falun Gong. And he himself is the model uh, being photographed generating, as it were, energy from heaven into the human body. All of this is esoteric enough to frighten the Chinese authorities, because if you have a direct link to heaven, and you have direct link to heaven's power, and you are then only going to obey heaven's power or heaven's law, what the Falun Gong people call the Buddhist fa, uh, this term fa, they translate as law, although it's not a term used by any other uh, Buddhist church to my knowledge. Uh, this idea of there being an alternative law that is a more powerful law, uh, that really generated a very great deal of antipathy on the part of the Chinese Communist Party. And because of this direct link, this direct link to heaven, this direct link to the power of heaven, you bypass the party. So it's not that they were in opposition to the party of the state, they just simply claimed something higher. And because it was so much higher, because it was cosmically higher, then the state and its party fell into insignificance and essentially into irrelevance. So this kind of, as it were, almost blasphemy against the state uh, was enough to earn it a great deal of persecution. And my opinion is if they had just left it alone, it would have died out. But the very, very persecution against an exotic sect, an esoteric exotic sect, basically made it grow. People kept asking what the hell is going on here. And of course, what they've done by way of their own self-defense is to have made themselves more Chinese than Chinese. And you can see this in their international performance troupe. Uh, they have a touring performance troupe with an orchestra, uh, a corps of ballet dancers, martial artists. Uh, they come to London from time to time, the Shen Yong performance troupe. Uh, I've been to see them, uh, and they're actually better in performing traditional Chinese cultural dance and martial arts and things of that nature, they're actually better than the state sanctioned organs for these kinds of things. So they've basically taken up the challenge and flung it back in the face of the authorities with a considerable amount of imagination and daring. But this, of course, only makes the residual number of their followers in China persecuted even more. Well, I hope we can come back and talk more about Falun Gong another time. Fascinating organization. But I want to finish our conversation by sharing an idea with you, which was shared with me by a Christian from China. 
she said that she thinks that once Christianity gains momentum in China, it will become more difficult for the Chinese Communist Party to control it. So she's praying for more converts, so that the church grows in strength and independence. Do you think that's a common aspiration among the followers of religion in China? No, I don't think that the common aspiration is to have an alternative political center or on any kind of alternative political set of values. Certainly freedom of values, but not necessarily political ones. The political challenge that will come from different quarters. Western religions might aid and abet it in some way, but the centralizing motif of any kind of future struggle in China will be very, very much, I think, based on the quest for individual freedoms of the sort that we see and take for granted here in the West, freedom of expression, freedom of organization, that kind of thing. Uh, these will be secular values. It will be a secular challenge which is of course only fitting since the Chinese Communist Party sees itself very, very much as an atheistic secular organization. Uh, the challenge to it will follow the kinds of lines that we've seen in the histories of Western countries where the great revolutions that led to our current democracies were all secular in the first instance, no matter how much they are claimed by Christian groups. So I would see a secular challenge and not a religious challenge in the first instance. Well, thank you, Stephen. That was Stephen Chan, Professor of World Politics at SOAS, University of London. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute. And you can find out more about our activities, including our latest courses and research, on our website. The website is soas at soas.ac.uk or just type SOAS into Google or something like that and you should be able to find us straight away. Until next time, that's all from us here on China in Context.